are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of information you need, the truth behind the headlines, and great conversations. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. I had a tough time wrapping my mouth around investigative, but that's better at that time. How you doing, Rod? Doing well, Lee. Doing well. Can't complain. How about yourself? Good. We have a great show today. In the first hour, you managed to get an exciting guest. Listen up for this. Vladimir Putin is joining us. Right, Rod? That's true, Lee. I made it happen. I made it happen today. As, so, sort of. He's on video. Uh, audio, actually. We just care about the audio or radio show. So Vladimir Putin spoke at the St. Petersburg Economic Conference today. And it's such a significant speech that I decided to play a big chunk of it. So the first hour, we're going to hear from Vladimir Putin, and you're going to hear yourself uninterrupted, unexcerpted this speech. And then we'll talk about it in the second hour. And we'll also talk to Taylor Hudak, a journalist and activist who's been working tirelessly for Julian Assange for many years. Bad news about Assange today, right? Right, Rod? Yeah, unfortunately, it looks like he's going to be extradited, and uh, I'll be I'll try to be there to, to see to see him when he gets here in America. Now, we'll talk about that with Taylor in the second hour and taking your calls in the second hour, 202-521-1320. But come up in this hour, Vladimir Putin with an important speech given today in St. Petersburg, Russia, on The Backstory. I've only got a couple of minutes, Rod, but let me mention something. I was listening to the end of Biden Means Necessary, and they were complaining about the health system. I actually have good news about our health care system. Do you believe me? No, I don't believe, but go ahead. Okay, I, I'm really serious, and I have no explanation for this. But I think it was Ted Rawl who told me months ago, I think it was Ted who said, I mentioned I've got a lot of medical debt and I'm going through a divorce. My divorce is, is dragging on forever. My wife has not made any effort to make it happen quickly, not out of any love for me or anything, but prolonging the misery. So I remember I said, that I have a lot of medical debt due to my strokes. Remember I said that? And I think Ted Rawls said, don't pay that off. Yeah, I remember that. He said it doesn't go on your credit. Right. So I'll go one better. Ready? So Danny was talking to my healthcare provider last week. And we were looking at how much my medical debt was. And the last I looked, it was $94,000. By the way, Rod, you get $94,000 you're killing me? Um, no, I don't leave. And e even if you were Elon Musk, you wouldn't have $94,000. That's a lot of money. But she was looking at our our medical stuff online, and our debt was 1000 So she called them, and she said they'd canceled the debt, $94,000 worth of debt. And she said, did you just send it to a credit agency? which I don't need because that would be bad credit, right? They just canceled it. What do you think of that? 
No, I've, I've known of that to happen. You know, like I said, I've worked in the medical industry for uh, 13, a little over 13 years. So, yeah, I have, I have uh, known that to happen, and luckily it happened to you. Uh, it's happened to me myself. I've actually had a rehab when I tore my rotator cuff. And uh, so, yeah. Yes, and, of course, I'm paying them a lot of money in insurance. Uh, my insurance, my health insurance is the same as my rent. It's close to 900 bucks a month. But either way, $94,000 is gone. So that's good news. And I'm, I, I, I'm trying to give some good news about the American economy and say that Ted Raw was right. Let there be a lesson for you out there if you've got a lot of medical debt. It's just, it might go away. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it happened to me. Now, I want to get right to the speech. This is Vladimir Putin at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum that's held every year in St. Petersburg, Russia. There's so much important stuff about the war and about the economic war. Listen up, and then we'll talk about it next hour. Here we go, Vladimir Putin. Take it. I would like to introduce the vision that Russia and its leadership have on the current economic situation and on economic perspectives. And we'll also tell you how Russia will um, act under swiftly changing economic circumstances. Two years ago, when I addressed the Davos Forum, I said that the monopolar order was ended. It was ended even though there were many attempts to keep it uh, by all means possible. This is a historical, natural movement. Indeed, it is quite difficult to combine cultural and economic variety with a single standard. Now, some standards are being imposed from a single center, but that won't work. And the problem, the issue is that there is a wrong concept. You see, if only strong powers take all, all the decisions, it won't work. When all decisions are working from one side, when uh, all decisions are going just one way, the U.S. have pronounced their uh, victory in, during the Cold War, and they saw themselves as missionaries of God on this earth. And they have interest which they see as sacrosanct, but they did not notice that over the last 10 years, throughout the world, new centers, new powerful centers have emerged, and those powerful centers are developing their own institution, institutional and economic growth models. They have a right to defend their national solidarity. So we are talking about 
natural processes, those are technology changes affecting the world um, economy and the whole international relations system, where the role of dynamic states uh, with uh, growing perspectives, those are nations we can no longer ignore. And those changes are critical, fundamental, and undeniable. We cannot just sit down and wait for things to go back to their earlier state. This won't happen. But it looks as though some Western national leaders remain focused on their illusions, and they hang on to ideas from the past. They believe that Western domination of the world economic system is eternal. It is not. They are in denial of reality. They are trying to oppose the um, stream of hope. They are camping on their own illusions. They are deleting themselves that they are the, um, the states of what's called the golden billion. And they look at the rest of the world as their colonies, and the people who live in those countries are seen by them as second category human beings. This is what leads to that desire to punish those that don't fit their ranks, that don't want to obey. Also, they contravene their own ethical principles and they um, challenge the, when they challenge the sovereignty of some nations. For instance, Yugoslavia, Syria, Libya, Iraq, and those are but a few. There are many more. Now, um, attempts are made to isolate states that uh, go against their opinions. Even their sports, even the Olympic Games, even culture are banned because uh, of where they come from. And this also applies to sanctions against Russia that are unfounded and that are not sensible. This, the speed is unbelievable. Those are unprecedented sanctions. So they are trying to devastate the, Rush, the Russian economy. They're trying to strike finances, industry, and the standard of living of Russians. But they won't pull it off. Quite obviously, they won't pull it off. Russian entrepreneurs, Russian power institutions have worked in a unique way. Russian citizens have displayed their unity. And we managed to stabilize the financial markets, banking markets. We re-injected liquidity on the, in the market. We secured the stability of industry and we secured 
the safety of working places for workers. So disastrous um, predictions did not lead anywhere. Now, we understand where those predictions came from, those predictions regarding the dollar that was supposed to rise, predictions regarding the collapse of our economy. Those were attempts to psychologically pressure our business circles. Furthermore, some of our businesses and their leaders did um, believe those disastrous predictions. However, I would like to underscore once more that we must be honest, we must be realistic when we draw conclusions. We must believe in our own forces. This is quite critical. We are strong. We can face up to any threat. We can solve any challenge. The uh, several time millenarian history of our country is a proof of that. Three months have gone by after those unprecedented sanctions were slapped on us, but we managed to um, lower inflation. We only at 16.7% of inflation. As you know, our economic situation is being stabilized and our finances are stable. I would like to draw some comparisons with other regions. Clearly, you could say 16.7%, that's huge inflation rate from a world point of view, from a global point of view. However, in the current situation, it is not so bad. We had a deficit of 3 billion rubles. But we have now a positive national budgetary situation, and it more than quadrupled the predictions that we had. So this made it possible for us to rebuild and to refound um, internal markets, as I said before. We took specific targeted measures to re-inject liquidity into the economic activity of our companies. And all that took place during the second quarter. Currently, national companies have a lot more flexibility to operate during the third quarter. Now, as regards the payment of insurances, they can be delayed and they can be spread over 12 months starting in June of next year. We also lowered mortgage rates in May that are, and they are currently at 9%. We prolonged, we extended the, um, those low-rate support uh, programs in order to allow Russians to keep on investing. Furthermore, banking interest rates in Russia go on being lower. 
Our uh, central bank is lowering its interest rate. And I think it should be lowered even once more regarding uh, talking about the mortgage rate uh, down to 7%. Now, I wanted to call your attention to a different part. The initiation of programs will last, this, these programs will last for the same period. And so at the end of this year, uh, we will get somewhere. And the maximum amount of credits is 12 million rubles for Moscow and St. Petersburg and 10 million rubles for the rest of the country. Clearly, we have drawn more credits for long-term investments. Among others, we must support the economic structure of our country. We must leave aside state support and to financial institutions. We're going to allocate 120 million rubles to support those programs. And this will uh, enable us to set up new credit lines for new programs, new projects, uh, to the tune of 500 billion rubles. So the economic blitzkrieg against Russia was unsuccessful. As you know, this weapon of sanctions blows both ways. It goes both ways. And this has been demonstrated by, during the last few years. This is a double-edged sword which turns against those who use it. We know that among European nation leaders, informally, worrying perspectives are being um, thrashed out. They say that they're going to set up those sections not just against Russia, but also against all of those that fly against their policies, including members of the European Union. They've already threatened their own economies by introducing those sanctions. We've seen how economic and social problems have become worse in the European Union and in the U.S. We see to what extent the standard of living in Europe is going down. We have made some calculations, and since the early stages of the sanctions, uh, savings in the EU uh, could go up to 400 um, billion dollars. So those, that's a direct uh, um, consequence of sanctions. And so the Europeans will have to pay for this. And inflation in the EU member countries is above 20%. I've given you some figures regarding our inflation, but the inflation rate within the EU, um, even though they don't have military operations, is, is higher. And this is the highest inflation rate in the EU for the last 40 years. On the other hand, we have managed to um, index our wages 
as well as our pensions, in order to make sure that there is at least a minimum standard of living for the, um, um, the poorer sections of our populations. We managed also to support our banking system. Now, we clearly understand that the current situation is difficult. It's difficult for our citizens, and I'd like to thank our citizens for because they pulled back a lot of money into banks thanks to those high interest rates. We know that the current rates of inflation um, eat up a fair amount of the savings of our citizens. We also know that European company losses are very high. We know that the European economy is losing its speed, its growth in a systemic way, and this has been the case for several years. They have systemic, very deep issues, and those issues are going to worsen. I also took this up in Davos, the direct impact of the current economic, the current European policy will worsen the current breaks in their society because there are breaks, there are gaps between the different layers of their society. And so currently those contradictions have been um, uh, hidden. But when we look at the reality of Europe, when we look at the um, leaders of Europe, the situation is quite incredible because we are looking at brother parties. In other words, what's being changed is only the participants. But the meaning, the significance of the policies do not change. We can see there's an increase in populism. We see there's a degradation of elites, and this might lead to a real change. Currently, we realize that the new parties are very similar to the former ones. So we can uh, pretend that all is fine and that's only the price to be paid for their unity. But that's of no use. Currently, the Union, the European Union, has lost its economic and political sovereignty, all the more so because they uh, try and meet external requirements by threatening their own businesses and their own economies. The current situation, the current difficult economic situation is not just the results of the last few months. It is not the result of the special military operation that Russia has undertaken in Donbass. So to make such a statement would be a way to um, displace responsibilities. Actually, the current situation has been created a long time ago. And our world is currently in this situation because of the 
so-called uh, G7 policies. The, the G7 accumulated debt over many years. And this has worsened during the corona pandemic in 2020, when um, demand and supply for services had gone down. What is the role of the special military operation Donbass in all of this? Well, there is no role. There is no action. All because the leaders of Western nations have started uh, printing money to try and cover the huge deficit they face. Over the last couple of years, the uh, money supply in the U.S. increased by 38%. That amounts to 5.9 billion dollars. There's only a few countries in the world that have a GDP above that figure. And the money supply in the EU has also increased hugely, about 20% or more. And I, I have been hearing noises lately, and you will forgive me, because I don't like to um, um, compliment ourselves, but the West, Westerners talk about inflation, the, the so-called Putin inflation. But if you have a head, if you, you can think for yourself, you will understand what's going on, because the special military operation in Donbass now has nothing to do with the uh, increase in the prices of energy and foodstuffs and the like. So this situation is but the consequence of huge management mistakes by leaders in the U.S. and the EU. Clearly, a um, special military operation has had a role to play in that process, but that process had already taken place. What is currently taking place is threat. Actually, what they're saying, uh, we are not responsible for using those financial resources and the, the financial resources that we not, not manage properly. Now, you may ask, where did those hundreds of um, million uh, of uh, money that was printed, where did it go? When they were printing money, they didn't think about that. But currently, they realize that they only have very little money left. In 2019, imports to the U.S. was to the amount of $200 billion per month. Currently, it's up to $350 billion. And this increase um, was to the tune of 40%. 40%. So this is more 
acknowledge the same amount of money that was printed over the last couple of years and that was spread on the markets of third countries. I would like to add that the U.S. were huge foodstuff suppliers on world markets, global markets. They had a long um, farming tradition, quite exemplary for us as well. That's the way it was, but currently they have changed a lot in a very basic way. Currently, the U.S. has turned into an importer of foodstuffs. They buy foodstuffs throughout the world. And they keep on increasing their imports. But it's even more obvious in the EU countries. They have set off a wave of shortages and inflation over the last couple of years. Almost all foodstuffs, the prices have gone up, not just primary resources, but mostly foodstuffs. Obviously, the US and the EU keep on importing, but the gap between imports and exports has changed. Currently, um, imports is 13 billion more than exports. In February of this year, the import index of foodstuffs was set at 50%, while the import index of all commodities has more than doubled. So why do you exchange, you keep on, on trading um, commodities against euros or dollars that are losing value? So what can be done? This um, non-unreal economy is going to turn into an economy which is grounded in facts, in reality. Um, the currency currently circulating is um, losing value by about 8% per year, or the more so that this money can be confiscated or stolen. For instance, if the U.S. don't like something in the policy of another country, they will just deprive that country of that money. You know that several states keep their financial resources in dollars. They are denominated in dollars. So this is only a, a very objective analysis. You know that in the coming years, we will have a conversion mechanism of existing uh, mechanism of conversion of existing currencies, and not just Russia, other countries. As well. It will relate to foodstuffs, uh, to raw materials, and, and it will weaken the dollar even more. Now, clearly, the rise in prices and the current policies is lacking in vision. So this will keep on raising the prices of energy sources. So I'd like to repeat what I said. For quite a while, way before the beginning of the um, uh, special military operation, those prices started to rise. So we should be accused of being guilty of that. Their policies 
have also triggered a, um, a slowdown in fertilizers especially nitrogen-based um, fertilizers, because those prices have gone up by 60% over the last 12 months. Currently, um, logistics of um, fertilizer exports from Russia by Yellow Russia is being blocked, and the situation is increasingly difficult. We don't know where that's going to take us. It might leave, lead to the, a decrease in the production of foodstuffs, so there will be shortages. Prices will go up even more. And the poorest countries will suffer the most. This is all the responsibility of the U.S. and EU bureaucrats. This is not, once again, um, because of what transpired a few months ago. It's not because of Russia, as was said by demagogues. It might be pleasant for us to uh, hear that we are so powerful, that we are able to change the situation throughout the world, that we had such power. It might be uh, uh, nice to hear, but that's not the reality. This current situation, this current situation has been um, rising over the last few years, and it was created by the lack of vision of those who made decisions on, uh, within financial institutions to change financial flows, to uh, create even more deficit and to set off humanitarian disasters in some areas, in some regions. Once again, this is a rehash of colonial policies, but in a finer, with a finer definition. Because you cannot really understand what's taking place at first sight, at first blush. But now we must secure the survival of those countries that depend on the production of other countries in order to survive. And Russia uh, can secure enough foodstuffs and contribute that to those foodstuffs for our internal markets. We can also ra raise uh, foodstuff exports. And we're going to export to countries that are the most in need of food, where there is a risk of famine. Some countries in Asia and in the Middle East, mostly. Of course, there are difficulties emerging that are not connected with our positions, quite obviously. You know that Americans have introduced sanctions and the EU have implemented them, and the U.S. changed their mind because they understood where that took them. But the Europeans have not understood yet what's going to happen. We understand. That wasn't very smart. But it's difficult for them to, um, to reverse, to go back on those. Now, Russia is willing to contribute to, uh, to uh, the management of the balancing of global markets 
которые понимают глобальные проблемы продовольствия. Предметом для политических, финансовых, транспортных, для наращивания развития I have to ask this question of the, the issue of uh, Ukrainian foodstuff exports to global markets. We are not the ones who uh, set mines in harbors. We are not impeding those exports. On the basis of U.S. calculations, we're talking about 6 billion tons of wheat, 5 billion tons of maize that cannot be exported to global markets. Now, from the viewpoint of global markets, that's not a huge number. And those exports can go through Poland, Belarus, Romania. There are several ways to export those foodstuffs. So once again, this is not our responsibility. This is the responsibility of powers in other countries, and especially in Kiev. So those people have to make decisions in an independent fashion. There's another way out that wheat could be used as a payment against weapon supplies. That would be very sad indeed. International institutions do not operate correctly. And we certainly cannot make any agreements in these countries. Conditions. Now, this decision made by Russia to carry out this uh, special military operation was a difficult one, but it was indispensable. It was a decision by a sovereign country, and it says so in so many words in the UN bylaws, the UN um, constitution. Russia wanted to defend its sovereignty. You know, that Russians were under threat of genocide for several years. You know that the West kept on increasing, building up um, its military presence in Ukraine. As regards the economic situation of People in the east of Ukraine, uh, they were not interested. But enormous amounts of money were allocated to feed Russophobia and supply weapons. Currently, the uh, defenders of eastern territories in Ukraine are fighting for their rights. The right to, to say what their future is going to be and to fight against the pseudo values that um, they are, that are uh, put down their throat.
the full, all the goals of our special military operations will be achieved. And the reason is the courage and the hearing values of our men and of our society that surpass our army, our forces. Because they understand the historical truth that we support. We want to support and defend the sovereignty of our state. In the 21st century, sovereignty cannot be partial. Sovereignty should be complete with all its components that um, are stacked one on top of each other. So we should not just defend our national identity, we should also promote our economic independence. The slapping of Western sanctions was built of the wrong concept that the Russian economy was not sovereign, that it is vulnerable. But that was a huge mistake. They were in love with their own concepts. They believed that the Russian economy was uh, backwards, and they did not understand how much Russia has changed over the last few years, how much we have evolved, and how much we work on building up our macroeconomic security, our, our food security, how we made headways in terms of financial independence. Clearly, the current situation uh, sets a number of challenges. For instance, the supply of spare parts, logistic chains are broken. At the same time, those challenges um, triggers new potentials. We often speak of this reality. It is a stimulation, and it is critical in terms of developing our economic potential, scientific and intellectual potential. Clearly, we cannot solve such a complex um, challenge quickly. We have to work over the long term by um, implementing the uh, development, development plans of the, the economic uh, development plans of our country. We're not changing anything. It's only the ways that we reach those goals that is changed. Now, I would like to touch upon a number of critical points in terms of the development of our country. First, opening. We always aimed for partnerships on an equal basis. As you know, those who are dependent always try to find culprits for their own problems. They depend on their uh, liege lord. You know that Russia will not self-isolate. Russia will keep on looking for partners with all those who are willing to collaborate with us. 
and we believe that the majority of the countries in the world, everyone knows that. I will say nothing new when I remind you that all of those who want to work with Russia are welcome, but they are under open sections, sometimes open threats from the U.S. And sometimes this blackmail is not worth a penny. When real leaders are in charge in countries, because those leaders know where their real interests lie, and Russia will keep on uh, increasing cooperation with those countries. Obviously, we'll keep on cooperating with um, companies from the West, even though uh, they are facing all those difficulties, they keep on cooperating with us. We will set up a new platform, a new, a new payment platform that will be independent to increase and facilitate logistic structures. We are developing new logistic corridors. We are building new harbors for shipping purposes, especially in the north, northern seas as well as the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And this will enable new means of communications with Asian countries in Central Asia and in the Middle East. So I'm not talking just about trade. Uh, there are other important issues, such as human humanitarian cooperation, sports and cultural uh, cooperation is also critical in terms of setting up and strengthening those contacts. Second principle of our uh, sustainable development, economic freedoms. Every private initiative will um, uh, for the development of Russia should be supported. The pandemic showed us that flexibility and economic uh, freedom are critical. You can compete on the world market, on the world market by making adjustment um, with uh, changing realities. We must make sure that the development of the economy is grounded on, is based on private companies. You know that there was a moratorium on the um, um, payment vehicles of private companies until 2018. We extended that to 2021. You know that we have still decreased the checks on all private business representatives. But this is on, uh, on the condition that it doesn't threaten the environment. So increasingly, there is less pressure on private companies. We have decreased taxes six times last year. Why? Because of the trust that we have in private companies, they have become 
even more self-responsible. It shows that Russian companies have become mature. So let's, let's understand that we, are still, we have still a strong motivation to increase the level of trust vis-à-vis -vis private businesses. And we decided to ban the uh, verification system of all Russian private companies that are not connected with any um, threat to health. Everyone will understand that we want a, a, to plump for an approach which uh, takes risks into account. I want to ask our um, business leaders to develop programs that will minimize um, wrongdoing and other infringements. We are currently working on laws, economic laws, and criminal law terms related to economic activity. In the near future, we're going to um, pass, we're going to uh, mitigate laws, lighten up laws on um, tax infringements. So we must be cautious. But we, uh, we must prudently decriminalize um, economic um, offenses. It is a very sensitive issue. Indeed, we are currently facing illegitimate um, behavior from our Western partners. And so the upshot is that Russian businesses cannot comply with agreements. But we fully understand that they behave this way because they don't have any other way to do it. There's no other option. We should also uh, think in terms of relaxing sanctions, tax sanctions. Laws should match reality. We have been working on this since 2016, especially as regards inflation. Finally, we must review the time involved in prior detention of economic players. When businessmen are in jail, companies have to stop their businesses, and some people lose their job. And the reputation of businesses is at stake. So I want all the leaders to stop those practices. And I want to ask governments to work with the Supreme Court and hammer out amendments to laws with respect to that. As regards the Security Council, 
We should also work on um, criminal cases that have been opened and that were not uh, completed. Some cases have been opened without any foundation. All those cases are used to put pressure on um, economic players. So we're going to thrash this out more in detail this fall. Undoubtedly, we want a, uh, the right atmosphere for economic business to take place, and we're going to talk about this during this forum. Strategic, the Strategic Initiative Agency is constantly monitoring economic players in Russia. Currently, the Moscow area used to be in the eighth rank. It is currently in the third rank. The Dula, Sakhalin, St. Petersburg, Barskov, Tostan regions have also gone up in the ranking. Also, the Kogan region went up by 36 ranks per Menaltai regions and Ebusheti um, up by 36.4%. I would like to thank our colleagues in those regions for their efficient work. The federal government will support economic initiatives taken by individuals, especially in remote areas. There are also manufacturing and sales programs of uh, programs of uh, ecological environmental products uh, in the in internal market. We must uh, create uh, new possibilities. We must uh, create lo electronic logistics centers. We must also modernize the postal um, operations, the, the operations of the postal system. We must uh, help SMEs and individual entrepreneurs to acquire new competences and skills. We're going to focus on small cities and we're going to focus on the development of SMEs. I'd like to uh, talk to the leaders of major companies. And dear friends, dear colleagues, Чувство достоинства и самоуважения приходит только тогда, когда ты связываешь. Our real success is this feeling of dignity and uh, self-respect, but that can be acquired only when you look at the future and the future of our children and the future of our motherland. We will maintain our relations with several company leaders. I know your mindset. On several occasions I heard 
that you want not just to make benefits, and I agree, because business is about changing life, it's about changing the country, it's about serving society. This is the meaning of life and this is the meaning of our work. The latest developments only confirmed that it is at home that we feel best. Those who didn't want to hear that have lost thousands, millions, sometimes billions of dollars in the West. They believed that uh, that was a safe haven for their money. There was a safe haven for their money, but that was not the case. So I'd like to talk to, to those who are not here, do not, um, do not make the same mistakes. We have huge potential. Invest in our country. Invest in the creation of new jobs, the development of infrastructure, support schools, support culture, education, art. There's Vladimir Putin today at the St. Petersburg Economic Conference. And Rod, did you hear the speech? Yeah, of course, Lee. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, among the things you mentioned, now, did you see any of the press coverage of this today? The Western press coverage in the United States? Uh, no, I did not. Okay, I caught a little bit of it. And anyone who listens for it, what you'll hear is every news report I heard referred to the St. Petersburg Economic Conference as the Russian equivalent of Davos. Did you hear that at all? No, I had not heard that. That's, that's the first time I'm hearing that. Over and over and over again. L listen for it. They talk about St. Petersburg as being the Russian equivalent of Davos. Now, let me disagree with that. Let me ask you, Rod, what do you think Davos is about? Uh, to me, Davos is where the elite meet and talk about what, the, what their plan is on uh, controlling the populations across the, across the globe. And you heard Putin's speech. Did that seem like the speech of elites talking to elites? It seems to me like it's a chamber of commerce for Russia, like he's saying, this is what we're doing. This is what our plans are. These are the principles we have. And he's welcoming countries around the world to do business with him as an equal partner. Did you hear that, Rod? Yeah, among other things. Yeah, that is what I did hear. Uh, and it's just, it's just a shame that we have to hear a leader across the world who can put a coherent uh, press conference together. While here in America, we have a, an old man who should be in, a, in an old retirement home. Now, this is an important speech. At the beginning, he made it very clear that the economic problems, the first off, the first thing he made clear is the unipolar world is over. You heard him say that. The unipolar world is over. The world where the United States and Great Britain just set the rules for the rest of the world is over. And he made it very clear it's not going back to that. And you heard that, right, right? Yeah, I heard that loud and clear. And he's putting America on notice. It's not going back to that. And it's not going back to that. That's not a threat. That's reality. And he also made it clear that the e economic problems are not what Biden calls the Putin price hike. He was adamant about that. He said, basically, you're stupid, the West. 
you've spent frivolously. You've just printed money to solve your problems. You heard him talk about that too, Rod, right? Yeah, I did hear him say that as well, talking about the uh, central bank just printing money because they don't have any money left. Right. And he, he's also talking about how Europe is not sovereign. Europe is basically a puppet state of the U.S., and they're act, not acting sovereign. And he was, and he also talked about the economic problems, the food problems. He firmly said, this is not our fault. We didn't cause the food problems. We didn't put the mines in the Kiev Har in, in the Odessa Harbor. It was very clear on that. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this important speech laying down reality for Europe who doesn't want to hear it. We'll talk about it more when we come back on the backstory. Truth to the Empire of Lies. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is Backstory. So in the first hour, we heard a very important speech from Vladimir Putin at today's St. Petersburg Economic Forum. He gave a speech today. It's a multi-day event. But I'll talk about that a little bit more, but we'll take your calls at 202 521 1320. And we'll talk to Taylor, Taylor Hudak this hour about this Julian Assange situation. This is a backstory. I feel like Vladimir Putin, I, I'm sure Europe won't listen. You heard that news headline, Boris Johnson went over there. Now, we have leaders of France, Germany, Romania, and uh, who am I missing? There's one other country, and their name escapes me. But France, Germany, Romania, and one other country went over to Kiev yesterday. Was who? Was it Italy? It Italy, right? You are exactly. Bonus, you go into the bonus round, Rod. But uh, then today you heard Bojo was over there. Right. Yeah, Lee. You know, like, what are the, what, you know, what is that? This is his second time, I believe, second or third time over there. Like, what does he, what does he put, provide moral support for the troops? Like, I don't, I don't know what, what, what the hell he's doing over there. What he's over there to do is to tell Zelensky, the head of a supposedly sovereign nation, that he can't quit fighting. That's what Bojo said, specifically, very explicitly. He said, "You can't give up." Now, what that's going to result in is the death of more Ukrainians. But Bojo doesn't care. He also said he's going to provide training so that every four months there's 10,000 new trained troops. Did you hear that yesterday in an interview with Axios, the Ukrainians have updated how many people are being killed? Did you hear that, Rod? 
Yeah, I did see that yesterday. Um, I think it's anywhere from 200 to 500 or something like that. That's exactly right. 200 and 500. Oh, about 10 days ago, it was 100. And what what it is, is it was really probably about 300 or 500. 500 is more than even Russia's saying are being killed. So Ukraine, first up, you can't get straight numbers out of them. But a, a lot. And they've adjusted their numbers upwards. And I think it's closer to reality. But Bojo won't let him quit. Keep fighting. Now, the other thing that Putin made very clear in that speech is that any economic problems that the EU is facing or the U.S. is facing, it's your own fault. It's not a Putin price hike. And it was kind of funny. He said, he said it would be nice to, he said, how powerful am I? How powerful is Russia? Right? You heard him say that, Ron. Yeah, and he also, I believe, or maybe I put this in my own head, but I thought he said, are, are people blind and, and deaf? Like, how, how, how is this Putin's price hike? And they never explain it. But, but, but Joe Biden was back on the media today blaming Putin's price hike. Biden is in denial. He will not admit why the prices are going up. And Putin pointed out the obvious, that the prices were starting to hike before the special military operation in Ukraine. Remember, we were talking about them on a show, and the price hike, he said, would, would be nice if we had that much power, but we don't. And Biden is not admitting have you heard any admission from Biden that shows he's in anywhere near reality about why prices at the pump and at the at the, at the grocery store are going up for every American? Uh, no, Lee, and also his Democrat colleagues like Ro, uh, Ro Khanna is also uh, still parroting that same line. So why would he why would he change any his narrative if if his uh, you know if the congressmen and senators are repeating the same thing still? And uh, Tarif, we'll get to you in one second, but I'll, I'll say one one important point there. Let's say it's true. Let's say it's Putin's price hike. Here's a question for Biden. Pay attention, Joe. Don't let your mind wander. What are you going to do about it? You're the president of the United States. So Putin's causing prices to rise. Let's Let's take that. Let's say that's reality. Are you saying you can't do anything about it? Because your job is to do something about it. Does it make sense, Rod? Am I being harsh on expecting him to solve the problem, even if he's he's correct about the diagnosis, which I don't grant him? But even if he's right, even if, even if it's Putin's price hike, and what are you doing about it, Joe? Rod, am I being harsh on an old man? No, you should be even more harsh on them because it's been months. Uh, we're talking about uh, the middle of February, so March, April, May, June, and you still haven't, you still can't get this under control. Uh, what are you going to do into the fall once winter comes? Right, and 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 is Putin going to end his price hike soon, Joe? I've got it. I know this is a good plan. I think this is a good plan. Let me know. It's a good plan, Rod. 
How about pissing off Putin more? How about insulting him? How about entreating him and his country with no respect whatsoever and just blaming him for all your problems? Do you think that'll solve it, Rod? In the mind of uh, Joe Biden, or the, the little bit mind he has left, yeah, I think he thinks that'll work. Uh, hopefully his wife will uh, put him on a straight and narrow. Now I'll talk about who I think is clearly running things in the country that I don't hear people talk about. But first, 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? Thanks for waiting. Hey, how y'all doing? Thank you for taking my call, Lee. How you doing, Rod? Uh, first, I'd like to say free journal signs. I have um, two comments. The first comment, journal signs, it seems like he's going to be coming here. We got to continue to fight for that man. We need, um, that's like, ooh, man, that's a serious blow to freedom of speech for everybody. So have hopefully if he come over here, that could, could raise alarms and people, more people can start standing up for freedom of speech. My second comment is dealing with um, what a um, Polish vice premier for security affairs say. His name is Yuroslav Kaczynski. He declared that the defeat of the U.S. in the West in the, in the West in the in Ukraine conflict will be as serious or more um, uh, uh, more important than Vietnam and, and Afghanistan. That means the U.S. And, and NATO will basically lose respect if Russia beats Ukraine in Ukraine. You know, which is already happening. And the, the Polish person that said that with that um, serious criticism of NATO in the U.S., he can't stand Russia. You know, he want he wants Russia, and he wants the U.S. and Russia to stay in Ukraine and fight. You know, and fight. So that's a harsh statement that came from him. Then, then when you, when you add the section that we had, we're going to a section, and you got media outlets like Rotos talking about. Wall Street fights for footing after st um, steep sell-off over sex and words. So we had him for reception. Ukraine about to lose. Housing market. Election. Baby formula. All type of stuff. Homelessness. People losing jobs. Just, so it's, it's not going to be good for us, let alone the administration. So something got to be done. We got to come to peace and we got to start Invest in our population. We got a free jewel in science, man. That's all I got to say. Thank you, Lee, for taking my call. Thanks a lot, Sharif. And you'll, you'll like the segment coming up. Taylor Hudak is coming up this hour, and we'll talk about the situation with Assange and whether anything can be done about it at this point. Now, let me ask and answer a question in the most conspiratorial way possible, but I would argue that is also the most truthful way. Rod, I've talked before, you've heard many people say, Biden's not in charge, right? They, they say, oh, Biden's not really in charge. But they never explain who is in charge. And I was watching Jimmy Dore, the comedian and progressive commentator, used to be with Young Turks, he was on Tucker, last night, and it was almost a cliche. Let me point out, is a cliche, especially among progressives. Oh, you, you mentioned Biden as a president, but a lot of conservatives do it too. 
they meet and say, oh, Biden's not in charge. But they don't answer the question that's obvious for follow-up. If he's not in charge, who is? And you know what I'm talking about, Rod? Right, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. So I'm going to answer the question. But let me tell you what Jimmy Dore said. And I think a lot of people would agree with it. Billionaires are in charge. And American oligarchs. Now, do you think that if I said to you now, who's really in charge? Billionaires. A lot of people would nod their head and go, yeah, that makes sense. Right? Agreed, yeah. Yes. And that's not the answer. Now, you could argue that ultimately it gets back to that. But let me be clear about who's in charge. And the reason I say this, this, my answer that I'm about to give is the right answer. Because this is not new. This has been going on, as I've pointed out many times for decades. The people who are in charge, if it's not Biden, is the deep state, the shadow government, the second government, the real power in the United States is these people who aren't elected at the State Department, at the CIA, at the Department of Justice. So I'm, I'm not specifying just the State Department. And you can say, well, billionaires are in charge of them. Oh, prove it. I think to some extent, the government, the deep state, has become its own separate government. And it's not elected. But who was the ones who came out before the election and said the Hunter Biden laptop is fake? It was the 50 intelligence officials, the deep state, correct? Did they do that at the behest of billionaires? Now, I'm asking you, Rod. Do you did you see a billionaire behind no, I don't, that? I don't think. No, I don't think uh, John Brennan and Hayden and all. I don't think they needed billionaires uh, behind them to put that out. I think they did it on their own accord because, uh, like you said, um, this has been going on for a long time. And when they get in power, you know, they want to stay in power. And so, um, I, I don't, I don't believe any billionaires were behind them writing that letter. And they could be. There could be some people worth some money. There's no doubt that there's big money on the other side of this, but it's not billionaires. Like it's not Elon Musk or anything. They kowtow to power. And so I think it may sound like the most conspiratorial answer, but if I say the shadow government of Jeep said, that's who's been behind it. And it's really a second government that is not subject, there is no election, electing them, is an independent government that in many ways acts like a fascist government and are connected to actual Nazis. But that's who's the real power. And Joe Biden is clearly answering to those people. If I said Joe Biden's answering to the State Department, He's carrying out their wishes. That's not conspiratorial, is it? Do you think, Rod? Uh, no, not at all, Lee. And uh, I'll take you back to uh, James 
Comey's book. He has a higher loyalty. That's what it's called, the higher loyalty. It uh, uh, supersedes the, con the Constitution. Yes, and and by identifying the right source. Now, I'll tell you, one billionaire, here's something I did today, Rod. I did some research. Nancy Pelosi, you've heard of her, drag queens like her. Nancy Pelosi, yeah. her net worth, she and her drunk husband, apparently it's about $200 million. $200 million. Now, you heard of another, another woman. You heard, heard of Marie Antoinette in history? Yes. Okay, Marie Antoinette, remember the people got upset at her and they had something to say about it in France. They threw her out of power in a harsh way. What do you think Marie Antoinette's net worth in terms of today dollars was? What was Marie Antoinette was thrown out of office by people in, in today's dollars? Any guess? Um, I don't know. I'd say like 10 million. Well, yeah, I'd say like 20 million, 20 million. $700,000. You see what I'm saying? Less than a million dollars, $700,000. Okay. So historically, France was upset at someone worth 700,000. Nancy Pelosi just the fact that she's got $200 million and she makes $200,000 a year. Why doesn't the citizenry, why isn't there a huge, why aren't there people on the street throwing a fit every day, Rod? Are the drag queens protecting Nancy? What's going on? Nancy Pelosi, think about that. About, I can't even do the math, but it's about 250 times, 700, she has 250 times the amount of money Marie Antoinette has when people threw a revolution. Where's the revolution coming for Nancy Pelosi? Rod, what's your prediction? Oh, oh absolutely never. Um... Absolutely never. I don't. I don't. I don't understand it the same way you, how you're saying now, Lee. Um, she's she's kind of a uh, trust fund kid in the way that how she's came into power. Uh, you know, like we like we said before, she's uh, Adela Sandro, where her father was uh, involved with the mob while he was the mayor of uh, Baltimore. So she's kind of just inherited this, and this is what the value of her inheritance has uh, accumulated to. But also, a lot of people. If they had, and think about this, she's worth $200 million and she's not getting any younger and neither, none of us are. So I'm not selling her, but she's not getting any younger. And she's keeping a job that pays about $200,000 a year. What does that tell you, Rod? Why is she keeping her job? No, because the money that she makes on the side of it is uh, she'll, she could never do that anywhere else uh, outside of politics. So she 
you know, staying in staying in power is more profitable. Exactly um, right. It's a Benny's, right? Not she's not on speed, not those kind of Benny's, but it's the benefits. And one of the benefits of power is that it increases her money. People should be throwing a huge revolution about that. The existence of a Speaker of the House worth $200 million a year, and she made her money through politics. Because you're right, she is a Delisandro, but she didn't make most of that money through that. She made it in politics. That's something deeply broken about our system. Do you agree, Rod? Uh, definitely. Uh, look at uh, Al Gore. You know, I've been, since I was a kid, I've been hearing about Al Gore. You know, created the internet and this, that, and the third. Now he's the uh, the climate czar. You know, uh, I had to watch that movie, The Inconvenient Truth, uh, where you know uh, supposedly we we're going to be all drowning and floods and all this, and none of, none of those predictions came true. But he makes millions and flies and jets all around the world. And the other thing, and by the way, this is your chance to call on 202-521-1320. But uh, the other thing I like about Putin's speech is towards the end, he was talking about they're adjusting some of their laws so they're stopping criminal penalties for business people. Did you hear that, Rod? Yeah, um, maybe you can expand on that. But I thought he was what he. The reason he said that is because of uh, the sanctions have been putting people in uh, in prison. Is that what is that what he was saying? And they were or they were stopping yes. their business, closing closing their business down. That's an example of Russia, as far as I'm concerned, becoming a more modern nation and avoiding something where business leaders get jailed. Because he said it, it costs jobs, and he's right. And they're trying to work out what to do with them. But what he said was, laws must match reality. Did you hear that line? Yeah, no, I, I remember that clearly. So that, that's what I was saying, uh, it, it, to expand on that, that you know, he was saying that, that these other countries are jailing these these uh, business leaders while, he, like you said, he's, he's modernizing the laws. And he's still trying to keep, he's, a, to me, a very balanced leader. So for instance, you heard him talking about environmental concerns, right? So he doesn't discount them completely. But on the other hand, he says you have to balance them with business concerns in general that benefit people, right? That's why I heard him talking about. Yeah, exactly, Lee. Uh, you know, over here, we're trying to go... Uh carbon-free, like uh, Al Killer says, and net ne net neutral. Um, but Russia's saying, no, you, you can't you can't just try to make a, uh, a 180 and do things like that. You have, to, you have to balance it out. In fact, that's one thing that the speech hit on several times, being based in reality, not being based, not making excuses, not, you know, in the Ukraine war, Russia is clearly winning, and still the Biden administration, Bojo, Europe are not in reality on it. And in fact, another headline today was that the EU 
is saying, and this is what they said, Ukraine has shown they're willing to die for Europe. Now they should be willing to live the European dream. Did you hear that line? She said, they've shown that they're willing to die for Europe. I'm sure that's a shock to a lot of Ukrainians. They thought they thought they were doing, maybe they were dying for Ukraine, sure, they thought, but they didn't think they were dying for Europe. And yeah. Yeah. now what do you think Russia thinks of the fact that they're on the first step to letting Ukraine into the EU. The whole process takes about a decade, and there I don't think will be much Ukraine left by the time. But what do you think Russia thinks of Ukraine joining the EU? Uh, what do I think they think? I, I don't, like you said, I don't think they, they uh, adhere to it, and I don't think like, there will be much uh, Ukraine left for the EU to even want Ukraine uh, a part of it. So what Russia said, they said, we, we don't really have an opinion. We don't really care. And that's not surprising to me because the EU is not like NATO. It's not an offensive, they call it offensive, but I'm not dumb. It's not a military alliance. The EU is an economic alliance. And if Ukraine is dumb enough to want to join the EU. Russia could, could care less. But I would not be, if I were Ukraine, I would not be looking at the geniuses in the EU. The other headline today, have you heard about the kerfuffle that involves Nord Stream 1, the original Nord Stream pipeline in Germany? Yeah, I did see a headline about that, Lee, and it was uh, it was a little confusing because it seems like they were just uh, saying that it's been delivering gas for a while. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't really understand it that much. Well, they've got this pipeline, Nord Stream 1, not 2. The, the West, because their geniuses, decided to cancel it. But Nord Stream 1, suddenly a bunch of gas that's going through that pipeline cut off, and Germany freaked out and saying, Wait, wait, where's the Russian gas we were getting? What's up with this? And what's up with it was that the pipelines got these, I don't, I'm not a pipeline engineer, believe it or not, but apparently there's parts like pumps or fans or something that had at the end of the cycle, right? And the only way they can replace those uh, in the pipe is Germany has to get parts from Canada. Does that make sense? So they need parts from Canada to replace this stuff in the pipeline. And without it, Germany is very worried they're not going to get gas. But, but they can't get parts from Canada. Why? Why do you think, Rod? Why can't they get parts from Canada? It's 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 obvious. The sanctions. Uh, oh, yeah, I was about to say the sanctions. The sanctions, the rules that Canada set 
because Russia didn't impose those, won't let Canada shift the parts to Germany to fix the pipeline to give Germany gas. They say they're desperate to run out of. So once again, the sanctions show they've shot themselves in the foot. And Russia said, these aren't our problem. They're not our fault. But okay, you did, did it to yourselves. So that's the other headline today. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're joined by journalist Taylor Hudak talking about Julian Assange, important stuff going on in the UK today. And we'll talk about it on the backstory. back on the backstory. Joining us now, journalist Taylor Hudak with an update on Julian Assange. Hey Taylor, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to get you as soon as I saw the news break about Assange, we had to have you on. So just first factually updates on what the status is. Assange is coming to America and it's not good news, is it? Today was not a good day in the extradition case of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And unfortunately, he is yet again one step closer to facing extradition to the United States. UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel has approved the extradition order. So while the case is still progressing and there is still an opportunity to prevent this extradition, Today's decision is deeply devastating, and the Western world is really sending a message to all journalists and publishers that if you publish information in the public interest that embarrasses the U.S. empire and exposes its crimes or the crimes of any government entity or intelligence agency, that you too may face extradition to the United States and you may face incarceration in a maximum security prison. So today's decision is deeply devastating. But fortunately, there is still an opportunity to appeal. Assange's legal team has 14 days to appeal, and they have stated that they will do so. They will appeal to the High Court of Justice in the UK. And uh, we just hope for the best at this point forward. And we really are depending on, on the public to, to step up and speak out and to publicly condemn this ongoing prosecution, which not only puts Julian Assange's life at stake, but it also is an assault on freedom of the press, the First Amendment, and the public's right to know. Also, if that isn't enough, and you're right, it specifically is a threat to anyone who's against war. Because remind us what Assange is you know, accused of. Yes, this is a really good question. So... Assange is being prosecuted for his journalistic activity through WikiLeaks and is facing 175 years in a U.S. prison for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. So specifically, it's not only the publication of this material um, that exposed these war crimes that is being criminalized here, but it's also the receipt of this information. 
and WikiLeaks revealed to the world the truth about the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan, really showing that the true devastation um, that has taken place in these countries. And you know, I covered this case since since day one, the extradition proceedings, and we heard about how WikiLeaks publications really shaped people's perspective on uh, these various these various wars and how the the publications really show the devastation um, that has taken place in the Middle East. And so the United States government is criminalizing the publication of this material. And it's also worth noting that those who who committed these war crimes have not at all been pursued by the U.S. government. It is the journalist who is being pursued by the U.S. government. So that really shows uh, what our morals are as a country. And it's it's just really a devastating blow to, to journalism. What do you think would be the effect? I know you can only speculate, but this Ukrainian military action by Russia, there have been a lot of reports of from the West of war crimes on Russia's part, but they're not backed up by any factual basis. Have you seen how journalists have treated war reporting in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? And how does it distinguish from how WikiLeaks has evidence-based and confirmed reporting? That's a really good question. So much, almost all of the reporting on the conflict in Ukraine, Russia's special military operation in Ukraine has, by the Western media establishment, has been complete lies. All the information that's coming out of Ukraine is not being questioned at all. Yet the Western media is 100% uh, being very critical of anything coming uh, from Russia. And one of the things that's been not discussed enough. I know you discussed this, Lee, in a in a very accurate way. Is how you know it's the Ukrainian government for the past eight years that was shelling the uh, Donbass region and who has been committing actual crimes. But of course, that is being um, completely ignored by the Western media establishment and the the journalism by WikiLeaks was you know raw material, raw files that were published that. Um, proved that there were actual evidence of war crimes being committed by the U.S. government. And that high-level, award-winning journalism is certainly not what we're seeing in the mainstream Western media today when it comes to the reporting on uh, the special military operation in Ukraine. That, of course, has been um, completely—the the Western public has been completely propagandized on this issue of the the conflict in Ukraine, no doubt. No, and talk about, in terms of journalistic method, how does WikiLeaks, how has they, they worked in the past? Does someone send them something and they just throw it up online somewhere? Here you go. What work do they do as an organization to verify things or to make sure that they don't publish something that could cause harm to people. Right. WikiLeaks really shaped the way that we talk about media. And it also is a unique entity because it lies outside the boundaries of any nation, state of any country. It has no country. And it is also funded uh, by, by readers and by the public. So the funding model is different. 
And it also allows for whistleblowers, leakers, if they have information that they would like to be seen made public, they can anonymously provide WikiLeaks with this information through an encrypted portal, you could say. And then this information is obviously, you know, thoroughly uh, investigated, looked at in detail by the journalists at WikiLeaks, including Julian Assange himself. And then that information is made public. And from all accounts, this is a very, very thorough and rigorous process. And it's worth again mentioning that WikiLeaks has never had to retract a statement and has a 100% accuracy rate in reporting. All of the information that has been published by WikiLeaks has been true information. This is an extraordinary record that we do not see among any other news outlet to date. And again, this is also award-winning journalism. Julian Assange won numerous awards uh, for his work uh, the work that is actually being criminalized by the U.S. government. And he has also been nominated several times as a Nobel Prize winner, Peace Prize winner. So this is really shameful what the United States government is doing, and it's seeking to really criminalize standard and normal journalistic activity. And I think all young aspiring journalists today should should seek to, to really have that same track record of 100% accuracy in reporting. Again, something we really don't see often and, and to just really be free from any corporate or governmental influence. And WikiLeaks is free of any corporate and governmental influence. And of course, this is a huge threat to governments and to intelligence agencies around the world. Now let's talk about some of the human aspects because I think it's important to, to remember that this is a human being. How's his wife dealing with this? And is there any update on Julian Assange's health? I do not think there are any updates on his health. His wife, Stella Morris, or Stella Assange, is continuing to support him. She said earlier today, very publicly, that she is going to spend every waking hour of every day fighting for his freedom. And I think we should all follow in her footsteps, take that lead, and really dedicate, you know, our efforts to ensuring that this man is not extradited to the United States for, of course, the personal reasons. You know, his life will be at risk and he will be treated very poorly. There's no doubt about this. But also because, again, um, journalism is at stake. And this will really, this, this sets a global precedent where I fear many journalists are going to be afraid to publish national security related information or intelligence related information or anything that could embarrass perhaps any government around the world because this precedent has been set. Many journalists just may say, hey, it's not worth it for me to publish this information because I too could face prison time. So that is what we are dealing with here. And then also that leads to a lesser informed public. And that's also problematic. The public has a right to know about war crimes committed in their name. They have a right to know that the intelligence agencies are spying on them. And another point, Lee, that I think will really interest you here too, is that there's been a another recent development in the case earlier this month. And that was that Mike Pompeo, who has been a very staunch proponent of extraditing Julian Assange to the United States and very anti-press freedom, I might add, he was summoned to testify before a Spanish court who is investigating, or which is investigating the security firm UC Global that was spying on Assange and then also used by the US intelligence agencies to 
perhaps assassinate or kidnap Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. This, this security firm was being contracted to help advance those efforts. And so Mike Pompeo, um, who was very, um, I think, the head of the CIA at the time, when there was a plot to, a very serious plot to assassinate Julian Assange while he was in the embassy, he has actually been called to testify at the Spanish court about this. So we have yet to see if he will testify and answer uh, questions before this court on this matter. But it's a very serious development. And I think it made a lot of people happy to see that perhaps there is a a pathway to seek more answers on this very serious nature. And it's appalling, again, that UK Home Secretary Priti Patel would actually approve for Julian Assange to be extradited to a country that plotted to assassinate him. That is unbelievably outrageous, and we should be really up in arms about this and, and ready to push back. And when you mentioned you should go global, can you fill in some detail? You didn't mention him, but Sheldon Adelson, the late casino magnate, and the major financier of the Republican Party and Donald Trump was, I remember, involved in that. Can you spell out what role Sheldon Adelson played in this part of the scandal about Julian Assange? Yeah, absolutely. So UC Global, okay, this is a private Spanish security firm. It was hired initially by the Ecuadorian government to protect its London embassy where Assange had been seeking asylum. The CEO of this company, David Morales, went to a, a security fair, and um, this was in Las Vegas, and it was at the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, and he was reportedly contracted by Sheldon Adelson's company to guard Adelson's yacht. But appears it appears as if this was actually used as cover to contract this man and thus his company to spy on Julian Assange. And then you can see that there's email exchanges between um, Morales and perhaps it could have been U.S. intelligence or somebody within the United States to further um, transform the security system within the embassy into a surveillance and spying network. And these instructions that were sent to UC Global's Morales were actually written in English. Um, which is, you know, quite interesting, showing that it was coming from the United States. So basically, Sheldon Adelson's uh, company was being used by intelligence services within the United States to contract this other private company, this Spanish security firm, UC Global. So it's a very intricate, detailed history for people. If they if they want to learn more about that, uh, the Gray Zones, Max Blumenthal wrote was the journalist, journalist that actually exposed uh, various components of this story, and, and there's a detailed write-up on that. But the, the point is, is that uh, U.S. intelligence contracted a private security firm, Spanish security firm, to spy on Assange and help advance efforts to assassinate him. And since Adelson was involved, there's reason to believe it's connected maybe to Israel, because he's a big proponent of Israel. Is there any reason to believe that Israel was involved in this in any way, Taylor? I am not aware of any information specifically related to that, although it is a very interesting question. But what we know is that this is very much a U.S. 
intelligence operation. Of course, other intelligence agencies could be involved. It's certainly not out of the question, but I'm not aware of any specific concrete information that could show that. But again, it, it could be possible. And so what does this say about the independence of Ecuador? Because, of course, Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy for years. What does it say about respect that the U.S. and the Brits have for Ecuador as a sovereign nation? So things really started to take a turn for the worse for Assange around, I want to say, maybe 2017, 2018, when there was a change of government and the previous president, who Rafael Correa, who first granted Assange asylum in uh, London's Ecuadorian embassy, he was no longer in power and a different uh, government was then brought into power. And this government really seemed to be in line with the United States government as well. And they were working together. And in fact, at the time of Assange's arrest, I was really surprised at, as to how this all worked because, of course, you know, an embassy, it, you can't have foreign police enter an embassy. And the British police entered the Ecuadorian embassy and arrested Assange. And I thought, okay, well, that's a little bit odd. How could they do that? That could be considered an act of war because they're technically on Ecuadorian soil. Well, it turns out that the Ecuadorian um, officials there, they were uh, welcomed. The, they welcomed the British police into the embassy to arrest Assange. So you see that there was certainly coordination among Ecuador, the UK, the United States, of course, to ensure that Assange was arrested and then put into prison. But as I said earlier, there was this change in government and the government um, in Ecuador and that government was much more willing to cooperate with the United States. And so that's kind of what led to the arrest. And it shows again, as you said, that it's not sovereign country, sadly. No, no, right. And and that's why I like to point out how many countries this involves. Because it really is has repercussions for about half a dozen countries. And one of them is Australia, because Assange is Australian, of course. Has Australia taken any position on this newest development? And where is Australia at in one of their own citizens being held? That's a good question because there is a strong support movement for Assange within Australia, but it's really disappointing to see that, unfortunately, the uh, prime minister there has really not taken a strong stand to protect one of their own citizens. And they are actually, in fact, obligated to do so. Uh, to protect one of their own. And um, we really call upon the the prime minister to to act on behalf and in favor of their own citizen who is facing serious and quite um, horrific conditions in a U.S. prison. But as I said, there is a strong support movement. There was also a change of government within Australia. They have a new prime minister now. And so there were hopes that this person would be a little bit more sympathetic to the cause, but there are several various MPs in Australia and others who are very vocal in support of Assange and calling for him to be to be freed and to be to be sent.
back home. And again, I, I know I say this every time I'm on the program, but it's very important to just keep highlighting this. And that is the fact that the UK government, the US government, and Priti Patel and others, they're very out of step with nearly every major civil liberties and press freedom organization who is calling for Assange to be freed. So as this prosecution and persecution continues, we see more and more human rights organizations step up for Assange's freedom. And there's been numerous renewed calls for the end of this prosecution. Now, Taylor, can you take us through what lies ahead? What's the schedule? Lay out what's, what, what's the next steps in what's happening with Assange. How soon could he be in the U.S. at this point? The defense, Assange's defense, has 14 days to submit an appeal, and they will submit that appeal to the High Court of Justice in the UK. They have already stated that they will do so, so they have 14 days to do that. And then after that point, it is somewhat unclear as to how long that appeals process will take. I assume that if they did not file to appeal, Assange could be you know, extradited within a few weeks or so, but they are going to appeal the decision. And then once that's submitted, and maybe there is a, a court hearing on the matter, we'll have some additional information on the timeline here. But this process could drag out for many, many more months. And we can only hope at this point that on appeal, this, this case could possibly uh, be won. And it, the truth is, is that it seems as if this, the punishment, is, um, or the process rather, is the punishment. I mean, this process is grueling. It has to be um, psychologically quite traumatizing. So this has been going on for uh, three years now. Assange is still in Belmarsh prison. So he is still defending himself from a maximum security prison, not the best conditions to be fighting for your life. And of course, he is he's not home with his family to best prepare his defense. So that is where things stand at the moment. And I would just encourage people, if they can, to donate to the to the various campaigns to help raise awareness of this case. Call the White House, uh, call your representatives, and make some noise because we need to continue that fight. So while the situation is quite grim, we still have an opportunity to stop this, and that will really be dependent on the actions that we take today. The the actions that we take today and the things that we do today for Julian Assange can really impact his tomorrow. That's really true. I know it sounds cliche, but we all if we all collectively take steps to to make a difference, we can see some positive outcomes with this case. Well, let's be practical and uh, talk about activism. If you're to, if you urge someone to call for instance their congressman or the White House, take us through what they should do when they call. One important thing to highlight is the fact, again, that Amnesty International, Penn International, the ACLU, all of these, the RSF, Reporters Without Borders, all of these major press organizations are saying that this is a violation of the First Amendment and it puts press freedoms at stake. The First Amendment is, you know, the global standard for press freedom. And that is something that, you know, Americans or America was perhaps once proud to uphold, but that is 
seems to be the global standard. So really highlighting, I think, that this case is a major threat to our basic and fundamental freedoms that we as Americans uh, should really care about and value, and that as representatives, that they should also value and uphold. So really highlighting that this is this is about press freedom and our fundamental rights, because that's ultimately what this is all about. Really, this is this is a pretty basic case. It, it's it should not be controversial. I mean, we are talking about really fundamentally shaping uh, the First Amendment, how it is applied, and we're we're using the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917 to prosecute a journalist. If extradited to the United States, this will be the first time that someone has ever been prosecuted in this way. Uh, it, the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917 was not at all intended to be used against innocent citizens, and it was not at all intended to be used against journalists like Julian Assange. So we need to really highlight these points here, that this is something that is abnormal, unusual. And also, too, if, if you're in an area where your representative happens to be um, a Democrat, you could also highlight this point, and that is that with the Biden administration's continued prosecution of this case, it is essentially aligning itself with the Trump administration and not aligning itself with the Obama administration, which initially chose not to prosecute this case. It was the Trump administration that chose to prosecute this case. So it's strange that the Biden administration is aligning itself with the Trump administration and not the administration in which Biden served as vice president. So that's also a, a good point to point out if, if you happen to be in a in a blue state or blue uh, county. That's what I would advise. And again, just really highlighting the First Amendment issues at stake. Now, uh, looking at the schedule ahead, are, is, are there any activism events, any demonstration events or protests planned at this point? Oh, absolutely. I think that there is a lot of events that are going to be taking place throughout the United States, and I would encourage everybody to go to um, don'textraditeassange.com. Uh, now, that is a British uh, organization, but they do highlight the various um, events that will be taking place throughout the world. You can also um, check out Action for Assange, U.S.-based, that will be highlighting the various um, activities that are taking place in the United States to raise awareness for Julian Assange. Um, and also, as I said, don'textraditeassange.com. If you're uh, a viewer in Europe, there's also events taking place in Germany. And then also assangedefense.org. That's another U.S.-based organization. Visit that website. Again, that is assangedefense.org, which will highlight the various activities taking place in the United States, but it's it's not too late to to make some noise. And if you're not somebody who's really able to go out and campaign physically, as I said, you can make phone calls, send letters, and talk about this case with your friends and family. Now, you mentioned that it was the Trump administration that pursued this, but do you get the sense that that was Donald Trump, or as you mentioned, Mike Pompeo? Do you think he was the person riding the train. And do you have any indication, uh, I'm not saying it's not Trump's responsibility, he's the president, the buck stops with him. But it seems to me like he's made some statements like he's sympathetic with Assange and that it was Pompeo pushed us. 
Oh, I, I absolutely understand what you're getting at. I mean, it was Mike Pompeo who said that WikiLeaks was a hostile intelligence agency. He said numerous very uh, concerning statements about Julian Assange and about WikiLeaks. So Trump did surround himself with people who were not very friendly to WikiLeaks. Rick Rennell was also another one of them who was quite influential in Assange's arrest. So you're exactly right. While this arrest took place during uh, Trump's administration, the people who were likely very influential in, in assuring that his arrest took place was probably you know, Mike Pompeo and Rick Grinnell, among others. But Mike Pompeo has, um, has a lot to answer to, hopefully, in a Spanish court. Um, because the CIA had serious plans to assassinate a journalist and publisher, and he is about to be extradited to the very country whose intelligence agencies plotted to assassinate him. This should concern all of us. If you're listening right now, if you are concerned, you should be. I just ask you to please um, take action, write to your MPs, call the White House, help to ensure that we, we save the First Amendment and press freedoms worldwide. And Taylor, we're out of time, but great appearance as usual. And I want to thank you very much for the work that you've done on this story and your, your unwavering support for Julian Assange and freedom of speech. Thank you, Taylor Hudak. Also, thank thanks you. to Vladimir Putin for a great speech in St. Petersburg. Remember, we're off Monday. It's a federal holiday, Juneteenth. We'll be back Tuesday on the best damn radio show in the world. Free Assange. Goodbye from the backstory.